Welcome to uh, the second broadcast for the uh, uh, Southern Nevada Coalition for Wildlife. We are actually here with the Battleborn Duckers. We're using their podcast uh, and their equipment here. I've got uh, Ron Stoker on the one side of me, and I got Brian Burris. Um, we've also got a call-in guest tonight, a speaker for us, uh, Mr. Joel Blakesy, who happens to be the current uh, president of the Nevada Trappers Association. So he'll be here talking uh, uh, quite a bit about the history of trapping in Nevada uh, and how we got to where we're at today. So this is a, uh, a segment where you can actually type your comments in or your questions in. If you got a question for Joel, just go to the bottom down there, type in your comments. Uh, we'll see it. And uh, we will uh, ask Joel the questions and uh, get the answer for you. So... Guys, thank you again. Well, thanks for coming with us, Mike. Uh, I think this will be a good one. So there's a lot of information that's pretty useful uh, with the trapping one. I know it's hit it a little bit a couple weeks in a row with you, Mike, uh, just about the importance of trapping and what the trappers do to our community. It's great to have you know another subject matter expert with having Joel on. And uh, it'll, I think it would just be an informative situation, an informative uh, podcast for everybody. Joel, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, I'm 66 years old, and I've been trapping for 60 years at least. Um, uh, I've trapped in seven different states, and every county in Nevada except Clark. Um, I've made a living at it a number of years when I was younger. And then, of course, I've been involved in the association since the late 80s so what's that over 30 years now <laughs> yeah pretty you spent um, a lot of time in it. it say that again you spent a lot of time uh, in the association helping the guys out yeah yeah I, I was one of the founding members of the northern coalition for wildlife um i wanted to be involved in that you know the so the trappers would be involved with the bigger group because we're one of the, the smaller groups so we needed to be associated with the other sportsmen and then of course I helped form the Southern Nevada Coalition too um, what's that been uh, 10, 15 years about a decade yes. yeah so anyway you know I've been involved in, in both of those and I've uh the first time I ever lobbied was in 1977, so I've been involved in 22 legislatures now. Um, just been doing it a long time, and, and uh, I've been around the, the horn a couple of times. So You have. So, Joel, uh, when you started in the legislature, give a, we got a lot of brand-new trappers and stuff that are out there in the field and stuff. Give us a sense of... What it was like to trap in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and then how does it reflect where we're at today as far as uh, trapping, populations, uh, so forth? Oh, okay. Yeah, I can give you kind of a chronology of that. Um, I first started in Nevada in 1974 over out of Baker, Nevada. And in those days, it was pretty much the Wild West. There, were, there weren't very many regulations at all. Um, and, of course, that's evolved 
the we had a, a huge fur boom along in the late 70s and you couldn't believe the number of trappers and traps that were out I I was trapping up in wells and and I moved well actually I, I started out in White Pine County and I worked I trapped down there for six or seven years and then I moved up to Wells in Elko County and it was incredible the amount of interest there was in trapping in those days because you could get, you know, 50 to $75 averages on coyotes and you could still buy a brand new pickup truck for 10 grand. Wow. And gas was, gas was 50, 60 cents a gallon. And so it penciled out. You know, a guy that wanted to work hard and knew what he was doing and had the equipment could actually make a pretty darn good living in those days. You know, I mean, well, I guess it's relative what you call a good living, but let's say you could make a living. <laughs> okay. It can, it can help pay for itself. I gotcha. Wait, I, I, I didn't catch that. Sorry, Joel. I was I was in the middle of trying to fix the camera here. How, how much did you get per coyote pelt back then? Fifty to seventy-five dollar average. Oh man, what are you getting now? It's not even close to that, right? About the same. <laughs> oh man, and gas prices ain't sixty cents. Yeah, gas ain't. I, I watch. I mean, I, I I trap for a year and started Nevada Trappers page because I just love it. But man, that uh, that profit margin was a, a lot bigger back then, man. Yeah, I I remember. I think it was seventy nine and eighty. I caught one hundred and ninety three coyotes in six weeks, and average fifty five dollars a piece, and and I went out and bought the nicest GMC you could buy for eleven grand, you know. And that was down so, in Baker, Nevada. You did that in, or was that up in Reno area? That was up out of Wells. Oh, was it? Okay. You know, it's just more yeah. ironic because man, you're talking nineteen seventy four and. I was born in 1974, and Ron wasn't even twinkling as well as I did. So, so you know, it's uh, for, for us to think about back at that time when everything was cheap, and you know, you could get things. Your money stretched quite a bit further. And nowadays, at fifty-five dollars, it's yeah. almost not even worth worth the price of the pelt anymore. You spend more on fuel to get out there. So, that that's a part that a lot of people don't understand because they think that. The trappers are out there trapping stuff and they're making a killing at it. But what they don't look at, and Joel just told us, it was sixty cents a gallon. Now it's you know two sixty, three bucks in some places. But Biden's an office, so it's going to be four and a half to five dollar yeah. by the end of the year. So <laughs> those trucks get good gas mileage, though. You know, but they, the when you're driving up and down hills. I mean, but the gas mileage on those trucks, like we go deer hunting, and I'm like, holy smokes, it's like I'm financing a house just for a deer hunt. Yeah. You know, well, that's the thing is people don't realize these trappers, they go out and, you know, they're not putting sets, you know, five miles from their house. A lot of these guys are going out. I know a guy that drives from Henderson, Nevada to Searchlight every time he goes to check his traps. So he's, you know, two hours on the road one way just to set his traps and he's got his traps. They're not going to be set right up on top of each other either. So by the time you go check your set and everything else, you're 50, 60, 70 bucks just into fuel. It's not including any of your lures or anything like that that you're using. And then you still got to pay for traps and everything else and your license for the season. So a lot of these guys that are trapping nowadays, you know, if they're breaking even, they're doing good. You know, unless you're doing it as a full-time job, it's it's hard to make any money at it. So, but at the same point, it's such a good thing for our wildlife population. 
that predator control is one of the is vital to making sure that any other of these game species can actually thrive as well. So I appreciate having those pet trappers out there willing to do that. Well, that's that you know that's that's one of the key parts about it uh, that they are outside of a government agency. They are the only one that's out in the field protecting our fawns, the cats. Upland game, waterfowl. You guys are waterfowlers and stuff, and now because of that, you've learned how you got to put the nest boxes and stuff like that. So, um, Joel, we, we want to thank you for doing what you guys do and what your association does um, through the thick and thin. I know that you guys have had some hills and valleys and stuff, but you're still out there. You're still setting traps. You're you're still uh, uh, checking them and stuff like that. So, um, thank you for that. But what uh, is you? As you get out and you run a trap line, a lot of people think, okay, well, that's when the work starts. But how, how far in advance before trapping season do you guys start preparing? I mean, you get your equipment together. You get it all back in working order and all that stuff. So you only got 12 months in a year. Of the 12 months a year, how much of that is your emphasis on trapping and what it takes to go trapping? Well, you know, if you want to, stretch your trapping season out you could trap for six months out of the year i mean coyotes start getting prime in october in the northern part of the state you can work them until january and and then of course cat trapping from november until the end of february and if you want to go into spring trapping you know for beavers and muskrats in the water you can extend that clear through the end of april so you know it depends on how many traps you've got and how much equipment you've got you know it i mean you can spend several weeks um i i modify all my traps you know every one of them has um extra swivels in the chain and and uh, the jaws and the springs are set up and the triggers and and you know you you make cables that you tie them off to and and you dye them and wax them and and do those things if you've got ATVs and snowmobiles or horses or whatever you're using, you have to maintain all those things over the years. Of course, your truck can... And then there's a lot of time involved out scouting because there can be a tremendous amount of animals in an area one year and the next year nothing, or vice versa. Um, coyotes are really susceptible to things like parvovirus and different diseases so I remember one year I I caught 193 coyotes and about 150 of them were young of the year and the next year and they were easy that was an easy bunch of coyotes to catch yeah those young dogs are a little bit dumb aren't they (laughs) the, the next year I worked my butt off to catch 90 and I only had 10 or 15 young ones but what had happened is that summer before the parvo came in and just decimated them. So all that was left was parvo's bad on pups. You know, the old ones uh-huh. got through it. Kind of like COVID, you know, it it, it doesn't hurt certain uh, segments of the population, but it, it can be devastating on other segments. And so anyway, I, I've seen a number of those ups and downs over the years. But they always bounce back. But and it, just talking about predator control a little while ago, I, one thing I wanted to talk about tonight was a little chronology of 
what's actually happened in history. Yeah, that's what I was really interested in, Joel, is like, you know, where did it start from when you started trapping to now, like legislation-wise? Because um, I was why, talking why, to one of my... Go, oh, go ahead. Why, why don't we go all the way back to the start of the 1900s? Well, that's, um, that was before Brian was, was born. Not sure about Mike. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was just, I was just a pup back then. <laughs> I just put down my musket. <laughs> but a lot of people don't realize that from 1915 to 1930 there was a huge rabies epidemic. It covered the entire state of Nevada, all of western Utah, eastern California, northern Arizona, southern Oregon, eastern Oregon, and parts of southern Idaho, and. It was a, a scary, scary thing. And at first, the counties tried to deal with it through bounties, and that bankrupted the several counties' uh, coffers back in those days. They just didn't have enough money to deal with it. And so the, the state formed a rabies commission specifically for rabies. And I believe that was... Oh, God, what was it, 1920-something, 29 maybe. But but anyway, the state couldn't even get control of it with a, a state rabies commission. So the federal government had to step in, and they formed what was called the Biological Survey. And that was that, those were the first government trappers. And it, it took the federal funds to deal with it. And what they did is they went out and put a, a poisoned animal on every section corner in huge areas of the West. So they'd, they'd take a sheep or a horse or a cow or, you know, a quarter of one, and, and they'd fill it full of, of uh, strychnine, mm-hmm. thallium, different poisons. And so every section corner had one of these things. And then they'd go up in airplanes and they'd, shovel out tallow balls that were the size of golf balls that were just full of strychnine and whatnot and just scattered them throughout the deserts by the airplanes loads. And their mandate by the government was to eradicate coyotes, not control them, eradicate them. Wow. And back in those days, people thought different. And yeah, they, they, they like to do the more effective mind. method, huh? <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you know, not to go on and on and on about that, but, you know, we went through that period, and that lasted until the early 40s, and then they they came up with a poison called 1080, which is sodium fluoracetate, and it was kind of a canine-specific poison, and it, it worked extremely well on coyotes, and, you know, fortunately, it hit some foxes and stuff, too, but, but that really got control of of the coyotes for a while and and the things that flourished when the coyotes were released were bobcats and deer and antelope and whatnot. I mean there were huge deer populations back in the uh you know fifties and and sixties from from that effort. Hey, I, I got a question um, to stop you really quick with that 1080 poison. How that how did that affect sports dogs? You know, I mean, you hear these guys going out and chasing chucker and getting caught in the traps, and that's a big gripe with a, between sports and trappers. You know, where they kind of butt heads. 
I mean, I, I can't imagine that would would have caught a few people's dogs at the same time. You mean traps or poisons? The poisons. Well, they don't use 1080 anymore. I knew it back in the day. I I, I wonder how many yeah. sports dogs that got well, too. And there, there are certain states that are still using <laughs> some poisons for predator control, and it's actually turned into a, into somewhat of an issue because people are taking their dogs out and. And they're basically, as soon as you activate that, it just sprays this poison and it's killing a lot of dogs in different areas of the United States. And so there's legislation going in a lot of places where they can no longer use those methods. And what I think is going to happen is those are some of the same areas that they want pretty heavy restrictions on trapping as well. And so you're going to see those predator populations actually be elevated. And then we're going to have an issue in those areas and we're going to go back to, you know, the Ohio where you can't have a deer season anymore because you don't have the populations. So, go ahead and keep keep going with your timeline there, Joel. Oh, okay. It's well, the the things you taught, the mechanism you're talking about are called M44s, and they're a spring loaded device that shoots sodium cyanide into a coyote's mouth, and it it kills him pretty much on the spot. But Wait, how, hold anyway. on, you gotta go back. So, how, how do they get the spring loaded device in the coyote's mouth? <laughs> it's in the ground, and yeah. so. When they, well, they they have a they have a felt wrapped head that they wrap around. When the when those devices first started, they uh-huh. used a, a 38, 38 cartridge, and they put the cyanide in and cover it with wax, and it would actually fire a primer. Well, they they changed that to a spring loaded. Uh, they call them coyote getters, <laughs> um, and they're still used in very rare instances, usually wilderness areas. Yeah. Um, way away from the roads on horseback and stuff like that, but but they're called M44s now. But that is interesting. Anyway, That's the first time I ever heard about that. Yeah, so. yeah, they're they're you're very unlikely to to ever come across that because they they don't use them any place where there's any traffic at all for people. It's you know horse packing back into the remote ranges in the Rockies and whatnot where the, the sheep summer way back up in the back country, but oh, man, you're, you're not going to run into them in your trekker canyons. So but anyway, just to finish through the, the timeline, so Richard Nixon outlawed, they, they started de-emphasizing poison in the late 60s and Richard, out, Richard Nixon outlawed it in 1971. There were a lot of things that happened right there around 1971. You know, Wild Coast came on the scene and they outlawed poison. And, and so things changed and the deer herds took a hit after, you know, the coyotes and whatnot came back. And until 1976-77, when the, the fur prices went nuts again, um, I remember counting up the trappers that I knew about from the Idaho border to the Utah border to I-80 up through Murray's River in that square in that corner of Elko County. Okay. I figured there were 2,000 2, traps set in those days. And tell me when the, the biggest deer herd numbers we ever had in the state were. Right around the late 80s, 88, uh, 87, 88, 89. Yep. So that was about a three to five year lag after um, 
and, and fur prices were still strong into about 83, 84 for coyotes, and they, they stayed strong for bobcats. And we took a lot of coyotes along with, with the bobcats. So we had those those huge deer eruptions, and that happened during a huge drought. And one, well, actually two winter, big kill winters in a row. That winter, 83 and 84 in Elko County, my God, I lived through that. And you couldn't believe it. I mean, it covered the fence posts. And, you know, I was on a camp over in the grocery range, trapped on horseback. And we had to build a fire under the propane tank to get the propane to vaporize. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I, I, I looked that up online, and it's about 43 below zero where that happens. Wow. You know, and we had to take the horse rasp and scrape the ice off the horse's back and put the saddles on them and let it melt down over their sides. And, <laughs> you know, it was crazy. Wow. But, but so anyway, you go through the mid-80s and along in the late 80s, early 90s, all the fur prices kind of evaporated. And, and we went through a... a real period of malaise as far as fur prices. Well, we had the winter of 92 and 93, which was very similar to the winter of 83 and 84, about 10 years apart. The difference between those two big kill winters is when we were trapping coyotes, the deer rebounded. I mean, it went from killing almost every deer in Elko County to record numbers within five years. 92 and 93, they never came back. Are you you saying deer do better when there's not a lot of predators? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's... <laughs> oh, man, that makes I, sense, I, man. You know, I, I think habitat is obviously the number one thing, but I think predators are really close behind. And, and I've got the graphs and stuff to to show that. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious. You know, it's... Um, I, I worked with Sam Stivers, who was the fur bearer biologist, and we, you know, transposed the graphs of the coyote harvest over the deer harvest and you can just watch it when you kill coyotes you know like three years later the deer come up when you quit killing coyotes three years later the deer go down hey so, you can follow that over, over decades so you said something earlier that kind of um I, i'd never heard about before nevada originally had a bounty like utah on coyotes is that correct yeah, during the rabies scene. Uh, during the rabies outbreak. During the rabies And epidemic. the coffers in Nevada actually went belly up because of that. I'm, yes. I never I'm knew sorry, that. I'm having trouble hearing. But. So what, what he is reiterating, Joel, is talking about the bounty on the coyotes that you had talked about earlier, that Nevada had a bounty on coyotes, but that was during the rabies epidemic, just trying to get a control on it. And uh, to, our, to my knowledge, I, I stand corrected if it's not true, that there hasn't been a bounty on coyotes ever since the rabies epidemic, even though we start to lose, um, well, like you said, back in the 92, uh, 91, 92, our deer herds are starting to be on a decline. It's a, gra- it's a gradual decline every year after, but yet you guys were still out in the field uh, trapping, not as extensively because of Fur prices, gas prices, everything else—it's it. Uh, sometimes it becomes cost prohibitive, but there's still a few of the old timers that were going to do it no matter what. 
And uh, I, I just cringe thinking if we didn't have anybody out there doing it, what would actually happen to our, uh, our deer herds? I mean, we're currently at 90,000. I, uh, I dare to think what we would be at, you know, less than that. But, you know, since, uh, since the year, let's just say 2000, how, what does the face of trapping look like since the year 2000 to kind of bring some of these guys up to where we're at today? Uh, how many trappers do we have? And, and one of the big questions I'm seeing coming up is how many trappers trap for multiple species? You, you talked about you could trap for six months out of the year. How many guys actually do that? Or are there guys that are saying, look, I'm, I'm only going to go trap for bobcats or, or, or coyotes? Kind of like I know a lot of fishermen that go, hey, I'm only going to fish for bass. You guys that are trout fishermen, you guys fish the way you want. Us bass fishermen, we're going to fish the way we want. Yet both of them are fishermen. So how, what percentage do you think of trappers trap for multiple species when they go set traps out? Well, that, that changes during the decades. And that's an important question. That's a good question. Because everybody concentrated on coyotes in the late 70s and early 80s. And then coyote prices went to hell. And all we concentrated on was cats for decades and decades and decades. The coyotes have only been worth trapping commercially for about the last three or four years. And, you know, guys have been so focused on cats for all those years. I mean, we, we make sets to avoid coyotes because we didn't want them plugging up our traps. Right. Well, that's all changed. You know, a good coyote right now is worth more than a, than a little cat. And guys are having to make that adjustment in their thinking because we've spent decades um, looking at a different species. But last year, coyotes were averaging 100 bucks a piece, you know. It's not hard to go get 100 coyotes if you're willing to work at it. You know, I, I caught 100 coyotes in two weeks before, you know. It's... So, you know, there's pretty good money in coyotes the last few years. And right now, it's really the only species that's really worth going after. Um, the, the cat market is, well, California, they outlawed fur coats, they outlawed trapping. And one of the major cat buyers had to close his doors on January 1st in Beverly Hills. There was two real strong cat buyers, and we lost one of them. January 1st as of, as of 10 days ago? Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. Who, who was that? His name was uh, Pappas. Pappas. And what, yeah. what did he buy? What was his predominant reason for buying cat furs? Clothing? Yeah, yeah. He, he sold high-end coats. I mean, he, he went over to the uh, Hong Kong fur fairs, and that's another thing, you know. Uh -huh. Since China has clamped down on Hong Kong, the free trade doesn't happen over there like it used to. And then, you know, we had low oil prices for years, and the Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs are huge consumers of the bobcat fur. Mm -hmm. And when the oil prices went down, that, that hammered the value of bobcats too. So there's a number of things that have happened to the cat market, and, and most people don't understand the, the international ramifications of that, but the coyotes are largely driven by uh, fur roughs on parkas. There's a 
company called Canada Goose that makes high-end parkas. You know, they're thousand, two thousand dollar coats, and they have real coyote fur on them. And, and I met with them up in Missoula, Montana, a few years ago, and they they said we need ten thousand top quality coyotes. And they said, can the market supply that many good coyotes? And I said, yeah. I said, they're out there. And I said, there's enough guys that know how to do it. But I said, you're going to have to pay for them because we have production costs. I mean, a new truck now is $70,000 and tires are $250 a piece. You know, traps are 20 bucks a piece and on and on. They said, well, how much is it going to take? And I said, well, for the coyotes you want, you're going to have to pay 150 bucks a piece. And I said, the producer's going to have to get a $100 average. And lo and behold, they went right to a $100 average. And, and of course, the antis went nuts on them. And, and uh, I, I could talk about that for another half hour, but I don't want to, but. Well, I want to know. I, I actually am interested. How did the antis put pressure on them to get them to stop doing something that they wanted? Like you could be quick, you could be you could be fast about it, but I'm still interested to know. Mike, you'll have to repeat that. I can't. Okay. Uh, how did the antis affect affect the buyers that wanted to buy these pelts, and especially I know that uh, Canadian goose. Thing. I know it was a social media well, campaign for one. Well, they put political pressure on them. Back in um, the late 80s, the European Union thought that they were going to ban fur coats altogether. So they went to Canada and the United States and said, you know, they, they tried to strong arm us and said, unless you do this, that, and the other, and so on and so forth, we're not going to allow any import of, of any furs. And Canada kind of bowed to them because they manage the fur bearers differently. They they have registered trap lines and state-run, uh, actually, it's like cattle allotments in the United States. Mm-hmm. But in the United States, the wildlife is managed by each individual state, so the federal government couldn't acquiesce to their demand. And they basically told them to pound sand. So the International Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies spent over $12 million doing international trap standards and uh, what they call BMPs, the best management practices. They tested um, most of the kind of traps we use and determined which ones were, were humane and which ones weren't. And, uh, you know, came up with recommendations, which, you know, we all look at today. But, you know, the cats that are out today are just phenomenal compared to what I used to start with, you know. But so some good came out of that. But so the European Union didn't get their way because the United States still was a free country in those days. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So Joe, talk talk a little bit about the improvements on the traps. So you you just talked earlier about getting your traps together, you put another swivel on and stuff like that. In your estimation, is today do, do the trappers of today in two thousand twenty one, do they most of those guys abide by the best management practices and, and what does that mean to somebody's just getting started? 
Well, you know, obviously we want to create as little amount of stress on the animals as possible. I mean, we don't go out there to hurt animals, you know. I mean, there's some discomfort, sure. I, I never tell any legislator that there isn't because they know there is. But we try and minimize that as much as we can. So if you got a nice wide jaw face, it, you know, displaces the pressure and, and you don't want a cast jaw because you have sharp edges on it that can cause tissue damage. And, you know, you, if you swivel your chains and especially near the, the trap where the animal can revolve around freely, you know, he, he just can't get enough of a, uh, purchase on something to hurt himself, you know, to disrupt a joint or something like that. So how you fasten your traps and, and what kind of modifications you put on them greatly increases the comfort for the animal's experience. But, um, you know, back in the old days, people really weren't thinking like that. It, like I said, back in the 30s, the mandate was to eradicate coyotes eradicate wolves, eradicate grizzly bears. You know, those people were thinking about making a living in agriculture and, you know, animals like this got in their way. It was a whole different way of thinking than it is nowadays. It was it was a totally utilitarian thought process. And, I mean, they didn't care about whether the animal's foot was hurt. They were just going to kill him anyway. But, but nowadays, you know, we do, so... So, Joel, I, I personally am not a trapper, but I've, I've talked to trappers in the past and say, you know, there's a, there's a lot of times uh, that a trapper will go up to trap and the, uh, the animal will actually be asleep uh, underneath a tree or, or, or a, a ledge or something. Is there any truth to that? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, what else have they got to do? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not going anywhere, are they? Okay. No. Turn yeah, exactly. I've, I've seen that a lot of times. That, and cats especially. I mean, you look at some cats and it's like they don't even realize they're caught, you know. I, I've turned cats loose before and they still think they're in the trap. They'll hold their foot out there and I'm going, look at your foot, buddy, and get out of here, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a question. Joel, we talked about the talk about the financial side of it and how it's, a, it's more difficult today to make a make a living running a trap set than it was back in the 30s 40s 70s so down here in southern nevada you know we've we've got some pretty liberal people that decided to go out and change a bunch of our trapping laws and and exclude some zones that we normally trap in and then the frequency of checks increase and stuff like that so how big of a of a detriment is that to making that economically viable for a trapper? Well, that's a kind of a two-part question. You know, the the access issues obviously force the guys to go further out of town. And, of course, the, the shorter trap check encourages them to go further out of town, too. So the one thing that happens is your costs go up and... I mean, if you're running a long line, you're staying in a hotel or a camp or something and, and putting a lot of gas in your tank. And, and uh, I mean, I, I I used to run a line from here to the Oregon border. 
I'd, I'd stay in a motel. I'd stay at a camp one night, a trailer I had up there, and then I'd stay at a motel up at Cedarville, California the next night and, and then come back. But I remember thinking, you know, every three or four days I'm taking a trip that a lot of deer hunters plan for for the whole year to do one time, you know. It's, it's expensive. You have to have animals that are worth the money to even, you know, and even there, you know, I've, I've made as much money as anybody probably in the trapping game some years, but I figure when you break it down after expenses and stuff, hell, you may be making 50 bucks an hour. You know, it's, when you say making a living, you're not making a 12 month living. You're, you're covering your expenses and coming out with a little poke at the end of the season and then you go back to work doing something else. It's, you know, it's not like you're making the whole year's. Well, I'll take that back. There, there are guys that live close to the vest. You know, I got a friend over in Baker that's made his living for his whole adult life. It happened that, you know, he's still driving a 1985 truck and living in a single wide mobile home, you know, with, with no mortgage payment. So it's, it can be done, but I mean, you're not going to drive a, $70,000 Ford Raptor around and live in a 3,000 square foot house in a gated community trying to make a living trapping, you know? Well, that makes sense yeah. for sure. So, yeah. So, I, I had a few questions for you. I'm going to let Mike ask him since he can't. Cool. Yeah, here we go. Hey, so, Joel, I was wondering why don't they have bounties in Nevada anymore on coyotes? I, Mike, you'll have to say that again. So, so uh, he wants to know why why does Nevada not have bounties anymore on coyotes in Nevada? Well, I don't know that we've really ever had. Well, we we did back in the the rabies years, but it bankrupted the counties, and you know, there's a lot of people that started talking bad about it because it costs money, you know. I mean, people have to spend money. They don't like that. They much prefer to have somebody do it for nothing. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism about bounties because, you know, there's always the potential for fraud. You know, you can, like Utah, the bounty right now, what would stop you from killing a bunch of coyotes in Nevada and running them over to Utah and bounty in them. I hope they do. Yeah, I hope they do. Hey, but, so I'm going to ask a question. Brian could re- repeat it for me. Um, I So the, the cost of a professional hunter, Michael elaborate on this, a professional, um, what is it, exterminator of coyotes versus a bounty, which one do you think would be cheaper, Mike? So uh, basically he's talking about the cheaper versus the professional trapper versus a bounty system to get to have predator control oh you know it it depends on what the professional has uh to use i mean is he getting enough money that he can use an airplane you know does he have enough money that um does he have a long enough trap check time that he he can run multiple lines i mean can he Make enough money to hire people. It's, it's, I, I think a bounty, 
I probably shouldn't say this on the radio, but it would probably do as much good as what we're doing with predator management right now. Just, I just didn't see the money going to that. But, um, um, the, the thing is, it, it depends on what you can use. If you're limited to steel traps, it's going to cost a lot. You know, if you got an airplane, that's still going to cost a lot, but you get quicker results. I mean, if things went back to the old days and they let you use poisons, say we had another rabies epidemic, I, I bet you that society would probably take a different look at poison in that, in that situation. Right, right now, you know, that'll never happen, but you start having coyotes running up and down the streets infecting people with rabies and that might change a whole lot of minds about what they're willing to do you know wait joel you go ahead i'm sorry i I was going to add i was going to throw in there that a lot of people listening may not even know it but we did have a rabies alert uh two months ago um right up here on mount charleston so we do have a confirmed case of rabies right here in clark county and they were hoping they would put a even end out, put a notice out that, hey, if anybody finds any dead animals or, you know, any of stuff acting, you know, rabid to notify them. Um, but they did have a, uh, they did have a dog come in that uh, tested positive for rabies. Well, it's not just the rabies. I mean, you look at so domestic cats right now or, you know, their carriers of the COVID virus is what they're saying. And. You know, the, the good thing about the cat population is they tend to be a little antisocial, so they're not around a lot of people. But you get a disease like that that could, that could jump from animal yeah. to human. I think it's you really quickly start to change the narrative. And then maybe trapping is not such a bad idea for some of these people. But unfortunately, just like many other things in society, I think it's, it takes that big epidemic that is going to kill people before people even have an open mind. To, to the good parts of what trapping is. I, I think what people see as trapping nowadays is we have over here in Pahrump, we had an issue this last, we did, just got posted today. Did you see that, Joel, over in Pahrump, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me what happened. I Go ahead, Brian. Might hurt. There was a, somebody's, somebody's been trapping out in Pahrump, and they don't even know if it's a legal trapper or not, but they've caught three or four dogs in their traps and they've had three or four dogs go to the vet and this and that. And so first thing is they're going to blame the trapper. Now the question is, where are they trapping? Number one. And yeah, our people. So we had, I know personally we had an issue out in Loganville where I live is people were blaming the trappers, but they were letting their dogs run the Hills all the, all night long. And they were, they got hung up in a trap and it was, you know, three quarters of a mile away from their house. So, you can't really blame a trapper if you're not going to be responsible enough with your own pets. So if right. you're just going to let them run free and run at large. Well, I mean, everybody has to obey the rules. Yeah, and that's and I think that's a big part of it. But I think so. Now you're going to have a thing in Trump where the community is going to be in an outrage because dogs have been Fido. Getting traps. And I, I saw I saw later in that comment that that dog they had been gone for a couple of days. And so they were. They had the similar the similar rural town area where. People, unfortunately, that aren't accustomed to custom uh, to, 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 to the, the rural life. I mean, you can't let your dogs run loose because either they're going to get eaten by a coyote or they're going to get caught in some type of predator control. You know. And, and the fact is, if you're within your within 
distance of your dog, a trap isn't going to hurt him. I mean, you can go over and let him out. I mean, every chuck or hunter in the States probably had an experience with a trap. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, they get him out and they kick the trap and cuss the trapper and then they go finish hunting. You know? yeah. And you know what the sad part is? So we're losing areas that we can trap. I know the Overton management area, um, technically, legally, you can go trap that if you get a permit from... Endow. From Endow, which is, it goes back to the preserve manager. The preserve manager won't issue any trap permits. I don't think it's the preserve manager. I think it's actually Endow. Well, it was Benny. I talked to Benny too about it one day. Oh. oh. And <laughs> no, he, I didn't know that. And okay. he, he said that uh, the concern is that people run their dogs in there and, and, and it's an issue. Realistically, where they're going to be running their dogs and going to be the area you're going to be trapping, that management area is, is, is a pretty large area. But at the same point, they're paying government trappers to come in every year to trap out there. Out there. So, so it's doing the same thing for predator control, but now as taxpayers, we're paying for it when we could be getting it for free. And it, for That's me, that never makes my any mind, sense. Man. I mean, we have all these guys that are very motivated to trap, and they're they're willing to go out there and do it. And instead of us like uh, kind of pulling the, the the reins on these or letting these guys loose to go take care of what needs to be taken care of, instead we have to hire a professional that we have to pay double to, versus someone that will do it for almost no cost at all. They'll pay for the opportunity to They'll do it. They'll pay for the opportunity to do it, but then we can give them a bounty, and you'll have even more go do it because then they can go to do something they like, and they get paid for it a little bit, you know, just like Utah does. And like, and you brought up a good point about these guys coming across the borders and fraud, right? But a guy all the way, like, by the ocean isn't going to come all the way to Nevada and drop off his coyotes. It's going to be the guys right on the border of Nevada that are doing it. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. I don't care. That's perfect. Those coyotes are probably going over there anyway. Yeah. That's what I was saying. The coy- what, uh, Joel, what's the effective range on a coyote? How much will it what, – what's its territory kind of? How far will it well, run? I think I think predators are kind of like people. I think some of them – stay right in the neighborhood where they were born their whole life and I think other ones wander the world. I I know uh, uh, oh, gosh, the guy up in Minnesota. Anyway, there, there was a fellow, I think it was named here, Ardell Draw. He caught a coyote on the north rim of the Grand Canyon that had a Montana ear tag in it. In its ear. <laughs> it was and, a tourist, huh? <laughs> And then there was there was one that uh, was caught out in Ruby Valley that was tagged up in Haber City, Utah. So they'll they'll travel. Well, I think it's there's any there's instances huge huge distances, you know. I think it's just like any other animal when they start running out of habitat, and you know if we're not managing our populations, a we're go, we're going to have big game populations go down, small game populations go down, bird populations go down. We're also going to reduce the viable habitat for the other animals. So they're going to have to move further distances. I think we're seeing some of that effect from the Idaho, Montana area where we're starting to get wolves moved down into Nevada and Utah now because, you know, they need that habitat. They need that room to roam. And people keep wanting to introduce these, these wolves and these predators, these apex predators that don't have anything really going after besides humans. And then we want at the same time, reduce our ability to trap these animals and, and hunt these animals, and I think it, it causes a big issue long-term for us. So, well, did, did, you, did you notice what the precursors to the wolves were? No, let's hear them. 
they they were running from the wolves, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's the truth. We we never had moose in Nevada until recently, and it coincided with about the time the wolves hit southern Idaho. You know, man, there's fifty-four collared moose in Nevada oh. now. Well, I'm okay yeah. with moose being in Nevada because then maybe I get a moose tag yeah. at one point. But then again, I can't ever draw a tag, so so there's that. But yeah, that's the thing is people don't realize it. You know, hey, Brian, it's because you're not living right. Yeah, well, there's there's a you know everybody loves to look at a wolf on a painting and it's a beautiful animal. Don't get me wrong, wolves are beautiful animals. Bears, you know, everybody likes a bear and it's a great thing. But hey, so are lions, but I don't want any of those. Like yeah, when you start putting those in to areas and you start introducing them to areas that maybe aren't, aren't, weren't there before, that habitat's got to change. And, and what happens is you dramatically change everything that those animals touch. So the, those wolves are going to eat anything that they can eat, and they're going to kill things just for the sport of killing things. So they're not like a, a you know, a cat's going to eat, going to go get what it needs to eat. And it's going to make sure that it's healthy and has enough to eat. But they're just not going to go out and kill it, make a kill, and then walk off. And, and a wolf will. And, and so we've got all these people that are advocating for bringing predators in. And, and at the same point, we've got the same people advocating to stop predator control. And that's, you know, we're asking for problems. And I think the trappers are, are a vital link to us being able to manage those populations. And, you know... The cats, I know right now in, southern, in the southern part of the state, there's a ton of people that are, that are trapping cats, not, not many trapping coyotes. Yeah. And I know people are specifically just targeting cats. Hey, but if you're targeting cats, you'll end up with a coyote a lot of the time, won't you, Joel? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And it's not even that. you got the fox, too. I mean, so I know my boy, the first time he set a trap line, he set 12 traps. <laughs> and caught nine fox or something like that. So, and that was in less than twenty four hours. So, obviously, that population is probably more than what it pretty needs robust. To be. So, it, it needs to be managed a little bit. If you're catching that many in in, in one small location, that's going to be a problem long term. So, those fox are going to take away from a food source that another animal could thrive on. As we talked about, Ron, I talked about the other day about trying to maybe reintroduce pheasants to certain parts of the state. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, if you're not controlling your predators, you're as soon as you let those animals go, you're just feeding the predators. So yeah. we got to have some middle ground with the trappers to, to make sure that we're all getting what we need from the environment. What drives me nuts is, is, is the, the stereotype with the trappers, how old oh, trappers are evil and trappers are bad. And we got to stop the trappers from getting these majestic fox and coyote and bobcat. But, you know, like, if we don't, if the trappers aren't out there doing it for free, then we have to pay somebody else to do it. It's just, it's this idiocy not to, like, let the trappers do what they love to do for, for, and make them pay us to do it. And they're happy to. Well, and I look at it, I look at it a little more political, too. I I look at it, the trappers are a litmus test, right? So, as a government agency or a citizen or a representative, if I can get rid of the trappers, that's pretty low-hanging fruit because people don't understand it, right? So people understand the need for it. They don't understand... It's really easy to paint them a bad picture. It. It's really easy to paint a trapper as, as not a good thing, right? But once we get rid of the trappers, who's going to be next? So then it's going to be... The government, trappers, the government trappers are pretty much on our side. We work together with them quite a bit. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're good guys for the most part. 
They're very, they're very knowledgeable. Yeah. Uh, that's that's what blew me away is me having an opportunity to interview some of them. Because, uh, like I said, I'm not a trapper, but when I look at what their success rate is and what they do and how they do it, um, it's phenomenal. But again, they're the professional. That's what they do. That's what they do 365 yeah. days I, a year. I think the government trappers, they get it, right? So they're not the ones that are going to push in get, to get rid of the trappers. Because no. they, most of those government trappers trap for themselves before they take a government trap. Because you're not going to learn how to trap just by opening a book and saying, I went to college, now I can be a government trapper. That's not the way it's going to work. I went to well, trapping school. <laughs> what I'm talking about is when, especially in Southern Nevada, when, which a lot of our legislators are coming from Southern Nevada and the state of Nevada, when they go to the legislature and they don't understand the trapping, we start writing new legislation to eliminate trapping in the state of Nevada like we have in California. That's gone. So then you take the next smallest group, which is going to be your bow hunters, your archery hunters, right? So then your archery hunters, then we target the archery hunters, and they're, they're a small group, we pick them off. So now we've got two down. And we go after the muzzle orders, another small kind of fringe group. Now we have three of the four down. The very last one's the hunters. And then before you know it, everybody's lost their rights to be able to harvest an animal. And and I think if we don't fight for our trappers as big game hunters, as, as waterfowlers, and everybody else, it's just like anything else in government. If you don't speak up for somebody else and try to stop it for somebody else, when it comes time for it to happen to you, there's nobody left to talk for you. Right. So, and I, I think that was one of the reasons that prompted me to try to get Joe on the show because you kind of laid the groundwork there, what, what the scenario looks like out in public. But in the state of Nevada, Joel has kept the trapping alive, uh, almost single-handedly. But it's not because of Joel. Joel has the data. He has the history to show why it's done. And, and that's why trapping is alive in Nevada compared to some of the other states and stuff. Joel, would you take a minute... And, and just talk to the people that are listening in on this. Why is it that Nevada doesn't have a quota system for bobcats where neighboring states do have small quotas? Why has Nevada been able to uh, n- not have that quota? Well, yeah, I'll give you that history. And you and I have talked about that before. Um, <sighs> You know, I'll start out by saying that Nevada probably has the best fur bear management program in in the United States, at least as far as bobcats go. And I'm familiar with several other states. I've I've gone to other states at the request of other trappers associations. I've had a lot of conversations with different management um, uh, systems in other states. But the but to go to your what you asked me to discuss. You know, in, intuitively, you want to have a population estimate, right? Okay. Well, wrong. <laughs> okay. The average person would say, just like a bank account, well, well first... Reason, and the reason is, is because the population changes every day. You might have four times as many animals in April as you had in January. So, what's a population estimate worth? You know, I mean... Every almost every wild species has what's called a birth bolt. Usually, they get bred in the late winter, and they have their young in the spring, and they nurture them through the summer and the early fall, and they're adults by by the next winter. So, 
what, what happened was in the late 80s, we had what were called the Bobcat Wars. And the, the whole world got involved in this because they have what's called a Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. And the United States was busy telling everybody in the world what to, what to do about their wildlife populations. And, and they banned the export of spotted cats around the world, which left the only spotted cat with a commercial uh, value was the bobcat. So they got a lot of political pressure for the United States to have to give something up because they were telling everybody else to give up stuff in their areas. So they put the bobcat on the appendix two of the endangered species list. Well, the, fed, the states managed the wildlife in 90% of the cases. The two places where the feds come in is if it's an, an interstate species like waterfowl that cross numerous borders, or if it's an endangered species, then the feds can step in. So by putting it on the uh, appendix to the endangered species list, the feds went to the states, and they said, all you states have to come up with a population estimate within a certain amount of time. I think it was like four years or something like that. Or we're going to shut you down on, on bobcats. So these states struggled and struggled. I mean, how do you come up with a population estimate on bobcats? It's not like you go fly around in a helicopter and see them like you do deer and elk. You know, you, you can't do it. So they, they floundered around and floundered around. And they went back to the feds and said, you know, this is an impossible task. You know, we need to, to manage based on trends. And that's, that's the way we manage most wildlife is by trends. Basically what you do is you see how many are going out of the population and, and measure how many are coming into the population. It's kind of like a hose. If you got more going out than coming in, you're, you're, you get concerned. If you got more coming in than are going out, then you liberalize your seasons. So. There was basically an act of Congress that told the states that they had the choice. They could either come up with limits or they could manage by trend analysis. And there were four states that stayed with limits. It was Oregon and Minnesota, I believe, and Maine and some other one. But the rest of the states went back to normal scientific methods. So in Nevada, we, we take the lower jaw off of each cat and analyze it. And basically what you do is you take one of the teeth out. They, they have what they call a boil party every spring and they pull a tooth out of every jaw. Well, a representative example of the jaw. And on a young of the year cat, it, they take a wire and they poke it in the top of the tooth. And if the wire goes in the top of the tooth, if there's a hole there, it's called the apical foramen. That's a young of the year cat. If that's sealed up, then it's more than a year old. So you say, okay, we took 3,000 bobcats last year and X number of them were young of the year. So we have parameters that we determine, do we have enough young cats coming into the population to justify the harvest of 3,000 cats? And if the number rises above a certain level, then we say, yahoo, you know, we have a 120-day season. 
if it falls short of that, and there are some other some other parameters that we use too, but the main one is the reproduction, you know. And we have what's called a 120-day season, a 90-day season, and a 60-day season. And depending on the reproduction rates, the number of trap nights, the male-to-female ratios, um, and what's the other one? There's one other one, but all fur prices. So they look at all those parameters, given most of the weight to the, the juvenile recruitment, and they determine the season. And we've proven for 40 years that we can have an unlimited harvest and manage manage the harvest by the length of the season rather than by putting limits on people. And it's worked extremely well. Um, like some other states, where they'll have a limit of three or five bobcats or something. I mean, I've, I've gone to a couple of those states at the request of other trappers and said, okay, if you're limited to five cats and a big tom is worth $600 and a, uh, a female or a young of the year is only worth $200, you think those guys might be high-grading toms? You know, and, and chucking the other ones? And then all of a sudden, any data that you gather is totally worthless. Where in Nevada, we sample the whole population. You know, we don't have anybody high grading anything. We, you know, some guys will turn kittens loose. I shouldn't say kittens because that's a misnomer. They're not kittens by the time we trap them. They're the young of the year. The guys will turn them loose like they throw a little fish back. And they say, don't do that, guys, because we're not getting an accurate picture of the data when you do that. We need to know how many uh, young cats are coming into the population versus how many old ones are going out. So that's just a, a way that we manage wildlife. It's you know, male to females. It's like buck to does or, or bulls to cows or, or anything like that. If, if we have a high male to female ratio, that's that's just like shooting. It's like having forty bucks per hundred does. We often have one hundred and fifty males per hundred females, and when we have that, it, it shows that the population isn't being exploited at all. The the fur bear biologists kind of start getting concerned when it gets down to like one to one, which I think is so extremely conservative because I mean we think 30 bucks per hundred does on deer is like huge <laughs> yeah well how come we how come we gotta have a hundred to a hundred on bobcats you know <laughs> no exactly so so this season uh it's a 120 day season which means the trend shows that uh the numbers are good uh yeah no no we we shortened the season this year oh did, oh, did you? we had a we had a we had a low reproduction. They they run it on a three year moving average. So it takes three years to shorten the season and it takes three years to lengthen it. So we've had two uh relatively poor uh production years in a row and a mediocre one before that. So we shortened the season uh we took two weeks off the front and one week off the back. Now from everybody I'm talking to, at least up here, they're catching a ton of little ones. 
So the data is going to be really strong this year, and it probably will be next year. So we're probably looking at two to three years before we get a 120-day season back. Okay. Well, it's possible. I don't don't think too many people are all that concerned about it because the prices aren't, you know, all that. I'm going to be all that great. Well, I think there's a possibility, too, that if, you know, guys are turning turning loose to the end of the year cats and you know those numbers are skewed so they actually just reduce their own season by by doing that so i think the important thing is uh, you know you have to wonder how many guys that aren't involved with the legislature part of it would understand that and they're not going to get the high the prices that they want to get out of those cats that are just letting them loose versus if they harvest them we can use that data and we can actually lengthen their season they have better opportunities in the future so i think that's an important thing to get out too so oh, yeah. you know the the legislators aren't all that dif- difficult to sell on on trapping once you you get in and see them there's a lot of high profile legislators in nevada that are getting calls from their constituents about coyotes in their backyards you know yeah one, Down here in Vegas. one, one one real high-profile assembly woman told me, she says, what in the hell are we going to do about these animals? She says, i got one hiding in the, the hedge at my driveway when I come out in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Did you put them there, Joel? Until <laughs> tucked in the hedge. <laughs> so that's, that's a concern to a lot of those people in Southern Nevada, and most of them don't know anything about it, but... It's it's like I've told them, I, I've defended, um, like, the trap check law 14 out of the last 22 sessions. And we've, it's always prevailed because the facts are on our side, you know. Well, the emotions are on their side, the facts are on our side. And if you go down and, and do a decent job of educating the people on why why this has a benefit to everybody else, you know, it's it's just a matter of getting in front of them and, and uh, giving them the information, you know, and it, it's always prevailed. So the other states that have lost it, it's, it's just simply a lack of somebody putting on a suit and a tie and showing up, you know. Well, I think that's one of the challenges we have in, this, in the Nevada state legislature is you get so many of these legislators from down in southern Nevada just because of our population down here, and a lot of them are more urban areas and a lot of even Reno area that's Reno too but they don't know they may have never been exposed to trapping in their culture they may not know anything about hunting and trapping and I think that's one of the biggest things that the coalition brings to the table is you have the opportunity then to educate those legislators and and tell them what it is you do you know how it's helping the population giving them you know, as a politician, you don't want just opinions. Sometimes it's, it's facts are better. So if we can go in and show them the numbers and we can show them, you know, we we made these trapping laws and we did the setbacks so ridiculously big on this date. And then look at your increase of your coyote encounters in the urban environment. And, and you can show them physically with data yeah. what's happening. A lot of them will look at things a little bit different, but if we just go say, I want to be able to trap because that's my heritage and I've done it all my life, that doesn't mean anything to them. So it really is, we can give them strict numbers on how things have gotten better because of trapping or how things have gotten worse in the case of Southern Nevada with the increased coyote encounters and 
man, there's been mountain lions and everything else coming into, into the cities. And so when we can point that those are directly related to the reduction in the ability to trap the area, that changes things. And, and we talked about it. I know Michelle Mortensen, we talked to her the one day at the, at the Woods and Waters meeting. And one of her things is she was a newscaster for a while. And her thing is that sometimes it's going to take a tragedy. And, and, and sometimes we wait for that tragedy, but we can avoid that tragedy. All it takes is for one little kid to be playing out in his backyard in a coyote to come and, and attack that kid. And you'll start seeing legislature totally change and yeah. be 100% open to the idea of trapping. We don't want to get to that point, though. Isn't there some place in California that they're suing the legislature for passing coyote laws so aggressive that their kids are now being attacked by coyotes? Have there's, you heard of that? There's, yeah, there's there's some Facebook groups down there that are now trying to uh, sue them to take it back to where uh, they don't the coyotes don't belong in their communities um, and stuff. You've you've got a couple forces down there working. You've got the um, you know Coyote Project, Project Coyote, uh, but you also got a lot of uh, HOAs down there. They're starting to come together because they're like, hey, if we're going to fight this, we have to fight as a group. Yeah. And you know what? We don't know how or when or why they came here, but we need to get rid of them. How do we get rid of them? What do we do and stuff like that? So um, yeah, but uh, but not to change the subject, yeah. you brought up a good point. That if you go on the Southern Nevada Coalition's page, there is a 20-minute video of the actual um, testimonies of last year's, last session's argument about the trapping and how it got on in that committee that brought up a lot of those good points because the data actually came out of how many how many phone calls are coming in to end out now. That there never used to be any, and it, it got to the point where you know it was sixteen hundred sixty-one, and everybody just got blown away by. Are, are you kidding me? I mean, wow! We just thought it was a few, a handful. No, this has grown twenty-three percent every year for three years. That is part of the testimony. So I would encourage all the listeners and stuff now to go check out that uh, little twenty-minute video on there and listen to it, and that alone will get you educated because we had about. 12, I, I say 10 to 12 people actually give three minute testimonies on that. And uh, it was it was very well received. It's probably one of the testimonies that it had been given in the legislature in decades. So you and Joel walk the halls a lot up there, right? Together. Yes. How, how much of your time does that consume to go up there and be our advocate that we never see? Well, it, it's kind of a misnomer. Okay. Okay. The reason for that is we spend more time in the off season, mm-hmm. sitting down, just educating them. Yeah. Hey, this is what's going on. What's going on in your district? Um, we actually sit and meet with them and, and, and find out, well, yeah, I don't know anything about it. And I mean, we don't talk just trapping. It's, it's wild horse issues. It's uh, diseases. It's, it's coyotes and, you know, what can happen. And it's, what are we going to do about our low deer numbers? You know, and stuff like that, because a lot of sportsmen today don't understand the legislature controls that. So what we try to do is go and educate them up front so that the time that we spend in Carson City is more of we're up there. okay? because when we talk to them the first time, we don't even know what bills being presented. Mm -hmm. And hopefully if we do our job right and get the information out there, there won't be a bill presented. If it is, it's like, uh, it's probably not not going to go anywhere. Well, last year, the biggest bill that got presented wasn't really a trapper's. It was more of, they want to outlaw the coyote calling contest. 
had nothing to do with trappers. It's still predator control. So it, it's still predator control. But then we started talking to them, you know, about that. And then, you know, there's there's always been somebody that wanted to, for whatever reason, just do away with trapping. And the sportsmen of the state came together going, wait a minute, that's our only line of defense to help us. It may not be that huge, but you take it away, that's going to hurt us. And when, they st- when we start to educate them, okay, you've got a predator-prey scenario out in the wildlife. It, it is pretty when you see it. It's nice to see a coyote running out in the wild. It's not nice to see a coyote running across your driveway as you're coming home from work. There's a difference. Yeah. And they start to understand that, like you said. It's Now, if if a coyote, if we start to get so many of them down here and somebody gets hurt, now what are we going to do? We have, a, we have a chance to do something about it now. And that's how Joel has is, uh, is kept trapping alive for the 40 years that he's been in charge. Because yeah. the data shows that. Well, and it's, it's coyotes are, I mean, they're good-looking animals, right? Yeah. I mean, they're beautiful animals, but and people will see them. I want to see them run through the wild. I want it this and that. That same person, if they came across a fresh coyote kill, that, that would change their opinion. Perspective. My daughter's so, a good case of that. And that's and that's part of it. I think sometimes as hunters, we've got to flip the narrative a little bit, right? So what happens is the antis are going to come on. They're going to show a video, and they're going to show the worst-case scenario. We deal with it in the ranching community all the time. So, you know, when I send it, send cattle to auction or, and, and they're, they go to a packing plant or whatever, they're going to show the absolute worst condition possible. So they're not there to show the average condition or the normal things. They're showing the people that are doing things the wrong way. They're, they're showing the worst part of it because they're trying to drive a narrative. So their narrative is, this is the worst thing on the earth. We need to stop it. So as hunters and trappers and fishermen, we need to flip that narrative to show the positive side of these things. You know, we need to flip that narrative to show, you know, the increase of, of our big game population, the increase of our waterfowl population. You know, I'll tell you right now, you overgrow a population of coyotes or cats sitting in, in Overton right now, especially during mating season and breeding season, there's going to be nothing left of that duck population. Yeah. And so we've just killed a habitat for the that coyote's a beautiful animal. And we all, I think we can all agree that they're, they're great looking animals. There's some animals that are pretty ugly, but I think coyotes are a good looking animal. But at the same unless, point, unless it's got an acme sign on well, it. Well, yeah, and, and I was kind of, I watched my roadrunners run around yeah. the house. And, but, you know, and I you think know, that's a big well, part of it. To answer, answer Ron's question about how much time we spend up there, I spend three to five days a week for four months. That's what it takes. It, and I have, a, I have a PowerPoint presentation that shows all of the things you've just been talking about. I have a white paper that's about a half an inch thick um, with all the arguments and pictures and whatnot that I, I drop off to the people in the committees. And I meet face-to-face with everybody on the committees, um, and some of them numerous times. I met with the chairwoman a couple of sessions ago 16 different times. And, you know, there are arguments that, that work, and that's because they're the truth. It's like when you, you have to deal with, you know, people get concerned about an animal suffering. And I say, okay, search in your mind and tell me how a wild animal is going to get a better deal anywhere else. I say, 
you know, I think in canines, periodontal disease is one of the biggest causes of death in in canines. I think abscessed teeth. I don't know whether either, any of you guys have ever had an abscessed tooth, but it's absolute misery. And they lose their whole head full of that. Absolutely, but yeah. They're, they're, profession, they're professional athletes. The minute, the minute they lose a half a step on the rabbit, their days are numbered. You know, they only live three, four, five years because almost every organism in the world other than the human race, its lifespan is basically determined by its re- reproductive potential. You know, salmon are an excellent example of that. They come up, they spawn, they die. Well, that's pretty much the way it works in almost every organism, whether it's a bacteria or whether it's, you know, a moose. You know, once once you're done with your reproductive potential, your your biological clock has expired. Well, I think that so, humans, if we didn't have modern medicine, I think humans would be the same way. I mean, you look at look oh, back at, at what happened back before modern are. medicine. Yeah. Basically, your reproductive life life cycle, you died shortly after that. Yeah. And we're talking 35, 40 years old, and you know, that was your lifespan. They, they, so. say, they, they say the Paiutes up here, the, the lifespan was about 29 years. The, the Paiutes in Nevada? Were, wow. Uh, yeah, they're around Pyramid Lake and whatnot. And they, they say that the lifespan back in the late 1800s averaged about 49 years old. Well, what are we now, 76? You know, yeah, it's we're living way beyond what we would live if we didn't have a brain and an opposable thumb. (laughs) So, yeah, that's the thing that that sets us apart from everything else, their ability to use tools and to think. So, but, you know, think about it. What what way is there in the wild? It's easy to go. I mean, you can die of a parasite load. You can die of starvation if your pay base goes away. You can die of rotten teeth like the Indians. That was the number one killer of the, the Paiutes up here was periodontal disease. Um, and I believe it's the same with, with the coyotes. Or you can, you can get worms or you can get killed by something bigger or you can get an infection. or you know, So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you follow up fall off a rock and break the bone, you don't get a set. You know, you just die. Yeah. Well, Joe, I really appreciate you and Mike and everything you do, man. It feels like you guys are on the front lines working for us and we don't see it, you know. Like, spending three days for four months, thats that goes that goes a long ways. And I'm sure you're being humble about it because I know it takes me at least a whole day to put a PowerPoint together because I'm not good at typing on that keyboard, you know. So I'm spending a lot more than a day doing that, though. <laughs> oh, you're a one-finger typer like me, too, anyways. Hey, and, and man, the trappers are the, the first line of defense for all hunting rights. It's like saying, like, oh, you know, we'll just give away Florida because they're all a little weird down there, you know. But I prefer take... to give away California first. Just, <laughs> just saying. Hey, okay. I'll tell you something. Just, just for your perspective, understand this. Okay. Trapping, trapping is fairly easy to defend with an urban legislator. They, if you tell them you're doing it for money, they understand that. <laughs> they, not, they, they, they do like the green like, they might not like that but they understand it but do you know how many times I've heard from somebody that says well yeah I, I get you're trapping for money but I can't stand trophy hunting 
No, I've heard that once. I've heard it a thousand yeah. times. Well, you know, the funny thing is, trophy hunting, it's another one that gets a bad rap. So what people need to realize yeah. about that is these people are feeding villages. So these villages would starve. They would be back to the 29-year life cycle because the hunters going in there. They're paying a huge fee to go in there and be able to hunt. They're they're paying for the services when they're there. They're paying for a guide mm-hmm. service. They're paying everybody that's involved with that process. And most of them, it's so cost prohibitive to ship any of that meat back. So that meat's going to feed those villages. Well, I think in some of the contracts, they, they say you're not going to get the meat. Yeah, and, and, story. and that's the thing is if you harvest an animal like an elephant or a giraffe that's a huge animal, that's going to feed an entire village. And so these people are, are counting on Plus those hunters to be able to, to feed their families. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but, I, always, I always tell them that. I, I say, you know, everybody I know likes to go out and get a big buck or a big bull, but I don't know anybody that doesn't eat them. You know, yeah. we eat the meat, but but that that head hangs on my wall, and I enjoy it for 30 years after the rest of it is washed down the toilet. It, you know, it's not the trophy. It's, it's the memory, right? It's not an either. It's not an either or thing. You you can be a trophy hunter and eat the meat. Both, you know. It's and you know you go into the the biology of adult males past their prime and so on and so forth and buck to doe ratios and you know you can usually talk them off the ledge on that stuff. Well, the best thing a hunter they shake their heads. You know, they shake their heads and go, "Yeah, okay, I get that now." Well, truly, the best thing a hunter can do is harvest a mature animal because they're past their reproductive cycle most of the time. If you're hit, if you're getting a trophy buck, it's pretty much going to be past its prime. Yeah. And so now we're given that opportunity for a younger buck to go out and breed more does, and and we're keeping those younger bucks in circulation. They're going to have another four or five years that they wouldn't have had normally. So I would rather see people hunt the trophies. You can maintain, you can maintain a, a population with ten or fifteen bucks per hundred does. You know, that's 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 possible. And same with bulls. You know, when I was a kid, they gave out a bull tag to everybody in Utah over the counter, but you couldn't find a mature bull in the state. You know, you might find a spike or a raglan, but the, the cows got bred. You know, well, the, the reason we manage more bulls per cows is so you get bigger antlers, better age class. But right, we're, we're, we're running a little long here, but I have one more question I'm really interested in. You being in trapping forever, um, do you think there's more trappers today or less now? Well, compared to when. <laughs> you know, it's, there's, uh, there's a lot less now than there were in the late 70s. There's... Um, more than there were in the, the mid nineties. Um, you know, I mean, we, I think we sell like 11, 1200 trapping licenses in the state every year. Um, okay. I mean, you know, it's, that's all relative. You know, I mean, there's times when there's been more trappers and there's times when there's been less. I, I think it's going to drop off a lot in the next few years, just given the, the world situation in the markets. Okay. Um, you know, I I don't see how what's going on in the country and the world right now is going to help anything. No, I want to hear your favorite traffic story too. 
I, I know that? I want to hear your favorite trapping story. I, I there's that video out. It was on Amazon for a little bit. Did you watch that one with the old guy from? God, it's a famous oh yeah, Jake. My favorite ones where he's yeah. a kid and he shoots the guy in the butt for messing with his trap. <laughs> <laughs> what was your? What's your... I, I, I knew Jake really well. Oh, Jake you knew old Jake. <laughs> Yeah, he was the real deal, man. He wore buckskin, and he grew up in Wyoming in the late 1800s, you know. So he, he was still catching 100 coyotes in his 90s. Wow. That's one of my favorite videos he, to watch. We watched that with the kids. Hell, he didn't weigh 80 pounds, he didn't look like. He was just a feather, but he was tougher than shoe leather, and, and he had some great-looking daughters. <laughs> Well, that's the most important part right there, right? Joel, I, I got one quick question for you. What's the coldest temperature that, that you remember, even in your youth, of trapping in? How cold was it? Well, I've seen it 60 below in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, but not when I was trapping there. That was I went up there to the cutting horse races back in the late 70s. And, and uh, actually, I stayed with the guy who ran the Jackson elk preserve there so we were out catching elk and taking blood samples and cutting the horns off in the squeeze chutes and whatnot but that was the coldest temperature i've ever seen but i've i've seen 40 45 below zero any number of times in you know utah and alaska and and nevada um you know of course I, I trapped a little in Wyoming, but just a little. But got the wind up there, will make it feel like 80 below, you know? Oh, yeah. But it, well, I've got one last but, question for you, Joel, while we're here. So, he still owes me a story. <laughs> what's, what's the one single thing you think trappers can do to help improve their ability to be able to, harp, to trap in the future of the legislature? Show up. Or have somebody that shows up. I mean, ha- having pro- professional representative pre- representation, there's no substitute for that. You know, it's it's like I tell these Mike and Larry at the coalition. I said we can either be the amateur hour or we can put on a professional face. And and you know, if you go down there and and you know. It's, it's a matter, the world's run by those that show up. Rod Harder, who was a, an excellent lobbyist in Oregon for years and years, told me that one time. And I've heard it since. But the world is run by those that show up. And if you're in the building every day, people will come and ask you questions and they get to know you. And it's a lot harder to cut somebody off at the knees that you know than somebody you don't know. So it's it's, you know, the, the social aspect in the legislature is definitely there. I mean, you go around, you get to know people, and, you know, if you tell them the truth, and I always tell them the truth, you know, um, they have a lobbyist school. Or, well, it's just like a indoctrination, I guess. But I remember the first one I ever went to, the guy just said, you know, these people are relying on you to tell them the truth, and the minute you... Don't tell the truth. You you lost your credibility. I I have several legislators down there that say you are my go-to guy when it comes to natural resources. 
because you know so much about everything. And, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, swell my head over that. It's just the truth. I've been around a long time. I, I don't know anybody's been in the legislature longer than me right now. You know, right. But you show up and you tell them the truth. And, and like I say, the facts are on our side. You know, persuasive arguments are easy to make when you tell them the truth. It's, it's, it's like the, the cruelty aspect. You know, I, I hear so many guys that start to try and mealy mouth around that. I, I never do that. I say, you know what? I'm not going to tell you that it's a bed of roses being caught in a trap. I, I won't tell you that for a second. But if it was as bad as the other side says it is, I wouldn't do it. Man, that I, go into, I go into the thing about what's what's the alternative. There, there's no easy way out for them. You know, it's it's going to be uncomfortable for a while, but it's probably going to be easier than whatever else happens to them. And then I give them just some quick biology. Do this exercise. Take two coyotes. Assume there were six pups each year, which is three more pairs. And assume no mortality. And assume that every pair has six more, three more pairs. You can't do the math after the second generation in your head. But in 10 years, two coyotes have the potential to reproduce to two million coyotes. So that means that 70 to 90 percent of them have got to die every year. Whether we take them and make use of them or they just go back to the ground, they got to go. Nature always produces a surplus. And that's, that's just straight population dynamics. You know, two, two coyotes can become two million coyotes in 10 years. So. I'm still two things you said. One is show up and nature always pop, uh, produces a population surplus. I'm going to, those are, those are, those are. There, there's two things I really like that you said. One is to show up. Like if you if like stop griping about it and show up and change it. And two is that nature always produces a, a population surplus. I never thought about that before, and it's absolutely correct. So I pre, I appreciate those two things you said. Yeah, it's 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 like money in the bank. You know, you got you got money coming in and you got money going out. You know, your bank account doesn't stay the exact amount. You know, and neither do wildlife populations. So we manage them based on, it's just like your household finances. You know, if you got more going out than you got coming in, then you got problems. <laughs> got more coming in, but, you Unless know. you're the government, then you got a job. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> Guess I'm not supposed to say that on the air. <laughs> Joel, we, we appreciate your comments, man. You are you are a wealth of knowledge, and uh, I I think that everybody got got some out of this. It's it's nice knowing the history of why we're doing what we do and the history of trapping. So we uh, want to thank you. Did you have one other question you had for Joel, Ron? Uh, no, I think that was it. I mean, he hasn't told me his story yet, but I'll just call him on the phone. He tells stories. <laughs> Probably inappropriate. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on with us today, Joel. Uh, you know, it's very important for us as hunters to, to get behind our, our fellow sportsmen and outdoorsmen, make sure that we all have a big community together. I think the, the coalition does a very good job of, of kind of advocating for everybody. 
everybody, thank you for joining us today. Uh, if you're going to go out this weekend, make sure you take somebody with you if you can. If you can't take somebody with you, make sure you're going to teach somebody something. And if you can't do either of those, make sure you hunt and trap hard. Thanks. Yeah. Have a good day. Joel, thank you. See you later. Hey, thank you, guys. I'll, I'll be listening to your subsequent program. Okay, man. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs>